gon' hit the floor, yeah. I rock to the beat till I'm fire. The walk in the club is fire. Get it crunk and wired. Wave your hands, scream louder. If you smoke, then fire up. Bring the roof down and holler. If you tipsy, stand up. DJ, turn it louder. Take somebody by the waist and ooh. Not throwing in the face like ooh.
Where the screen's staring back at me It's hell to earn a living on a VDT My supervisor says it's safe for me She shows me a study done at MIT You can see what it's done to my eyes Heaven only knows what it's doing inside it's not like I thought it would be It's hell to earn a living on a VDT Hey everybody, thank you for listening to Mutiny Radio. This is Roman, Common Thread Collective is off this week. However, I'm going to stick around for a little bit longer and play some stuff for everybody. Hope everyone is having a great week and congratulations on making it through another year. Eyes are aching, but now I can see It's hell to earn a living on a VDT I'm too hip to Yet there's always more to be done, and for many people, the question of where to focus and how to help remains. In this series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I'm Sarah Jaffe, your host. I am Reverend Emily McNeil. I'm the director of the Labor Religion Coalition of New York State and also part of the coordinating committee for the New York State Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. So the National Poor People's Campaign launch was this past week. Um, tell us about what's going on and why now. Yeah, well, it's a really, really exciting development, um, I think, and there's a couple of reasons why it's happening now. Um, the most important is that we are at a crisis point in a lot of ways in our country, um, certainly in New York State as well, in terms of how a large portion of our population are is being impacted by poverty, by racism and other forms of discrimination, by militarism and an economy that revolves around war in a lot of ways, and then also ecological devastation. And we're really seeing a point at which if we don't really mobilize and organize in a new way that builds power in a new way and connects people in a new way, that we're, uh, we're in trouble. But also the reason that the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is is picking up activity now is because we are at the 50th anniversary of the Poor People's Campaign that Dr. King and others led uh, starting 1968. So that anniversary gives us an opportunity to kind of look back at what has happened over the last 50 years to see, unfortunately, that a lot of the things that Dr. King and his colleagues were talking about then are, in many cases, even worse today. Um, and uh-huh. But also the vision that they had and the strategy and analysis that they had really resonate. Like if you read a lot of the things that he was saying in 67 and 68, it just is so resonant with what we're facing today. And so a lot of folks are excited about picking up this baton and trying to accomplish what, what they weren't able to. And to talk a little bit about what the national campaign is going to look like and what that means for your organization on the ground. The Poor People's Campaign is being imagined definitely as a multi-year campaign. Um, so we're really 
talking about a first phase of organizing over this coming year. And that is really building towards a period of 40 days of coordinated action around the country starting uh, around Mother's Day this year and going through June 21st. Um, and I think one of the unique things about this campaign is, even though it's a national campaign, it's really relying on grassroots organization around um, states all over the country. And so the, the actions are going to take place not only in Washington, D.C., but also state capitals, um, at least 25, but it's looking like it, it will be or over 30 or more states that will participate. And a big focus is on, you know, pulling together folks in these states that cross different lines of division. So groups that work on different issues that may not always work together, having a focus on organizing, you know, not just in cities, but also in suburban and rural areas, which, you know, obviously often leads to multiracial organizing, which is a real priority of the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and especially making sure that we're prioritizing organizations of directly impacted folks and lifting up the life stories of folks who are who are really experiencing all these issues um, and putting that message first and foremost, as well as engaging faith leaders and talking about the, the moral issues. One of the things that I want to talk about is, is, you know, this is being led by Reverend Barber, among others, and starting with his work in with the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, there's been a real push to reclaim the framework of moral values for something other than being anti-abortion and anti-gay. And I'm thinking actually, especially after the results of this week's election in Alabama, um, what have we learned about moral values and what that means in political action? I think it, it matters. I think that, you know, there's this tendency in progressive circles around the left, I think sometimes, and in, in among liberals, to mm -hmm. talk about, like, I don't know, to be kind of wonky about, like, why this is, why certain policy is, like, right from a factual perspective. Yeah. Like, and I don't know, that just doesn't, like doesn't move people in the same way that talking about, like, deep values and beliefs uh, moves people. Yeah. And, like, what we're facing, I mean, with folks living in poverty, like, I, I don't know if you saw the article, I, I think some Alabama newspaper about the UN mm -hmm. rapporteur on extreme poverty who was in, yeah. I think, Lowndes County, Alabama, and, yeah. you know, seeing folks living with, like, no sewage system, like, just living amidst raw sewage and folks are suffering from tropical diseases because of this the just the reality that folks are living with if you can't feel something when you hear that those stories and if it doesn't like trigger some question about you know the values of human life and how we take care of each other like then i think you're really missing the point um so i think these you know the, these, the policy issues that we want to talk about are responding to, like, real suffering. Yeah. And that's an issue about values and more, like, moral and emotional issues, not just, you know, policy in this kind of detached, like, factual way. So 
I think it's like part of it definitely like responding to the Christian right and pushing back on that narrative is, is important. I think that's part of it. But even if they weren't trying to hijack values, I think yeah. these issues are about like what we believe about what it means to be human and how we live together. And that regardless of whether people are have a religious faith or no faith or what that faith is, that's something yeah. really deep that we all can relate to, I think, and, and need to think about these things in that frame. Yeah, and so one of the things that, you know, people sort of assume about Americans in particular is that we don't like to think of ourselves as anything other than, what is it, temporary, depre- temporarily depressed millionaires or something. Um, but that people tend to... That people tend to identify upward and sort of don't want to say, like, no, we are poor people. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what does it do to, to say we're going to have a campaign that is going to be led by an organized challenge, this sort of ongoing ideological, I think, framework that says we don't want to think of that. We don't want to admit that. I think that's a really important aspect of the campaign, and it's intentional to be pushing yeah. back on this myth that we all could raise ourselves up by our bootstraps and just continue to accumulate and become rich. Um, it's obviously, like, never been a reality in the history of the United States. And sure. um, But there is also this history of people – on the bottom in all sorts of ways, like coming together and organizing and like claiming their identity. So I think like one of the explicit goals of this phase of the campaign is about changing the moral narrative around all these issues around racism and poverty and militarism and ecological devastation. And part of the narrative that the campaign wants to shift is this idea that being poor is something to be ashamed of. And instead to say, no, poverty is something that our society should be ashamed of. We have nothing to be ashamed of if we are not making ends meet because there are structural reasons for that. And people are getting rich off the fact that we are poor. And so to claim that, that it's not we have nothing to be ashamed of, the people who are perpetuating the system are the ones who should be ashamed is a big part of what of the, the messaging that we want to get through to people. And that's what the comes across in the testimonies that the campaign has already been putting out from directly impacted folks around the country. Like people standing up and saying, like, there is nothing wrong with me. Like I I'm not um there's a great video from this young woman, Nashila, who is part of the launch event. Um uh-huh. and she's from Grace Harbor in Washington State. And just talking about like I'm I was homeless because not because I'm lazy, but because society doesn't have any problem with me being homeless. And um, just really naming that she's not ashamed and has no reason to be ashamed to, to be poor. Yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, so multiracial organizing, you mentioned, is a really important part of this. And from the the things that I've already seen and the people that I know who are involved with this, I I believe that that's going to be a really significant contribution here. But can you talk about what that looks like in real time, sort of in the work that you've been doing? You know, how do you bring people together who might otherwise not 
encounter each other and really challenge people's beliefs? That's a great question. And we're <laughs> still trying to figure it out. <laughs> but I do feel hopeful that this is going to be a platform that will, like, bring people together in a new way. Um, so here in New York State, one of the things that we did over the last few months was to organize a series of truth commissions on poverty and we held three of them so far, one uh, in Cuba, New York, down in Allegheny County, one in the Capital Region, and one on Long Island. And there yeah. are a couple others in the works, it looks like, in um, Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse, hopefully. But the idea was, I mean, it's a pretty simple format. We had folks come and, and share their stories about how they're being impacted by these issues both folks living in poverty or experiencing various kinds of injustice and also like advocates and policy experts sort of folks. But doing them in those three different parts of the state, um, a very rural area, upstate urban area, and and the suburbs of Long Island kind of like automatically was showing the multiracial face of all these issues in the organizing structure at the state level now we're being trying to be really intentional about having representation from all these different kinds of communities so that we're uh, including like rural poverty and urban poverty and suburban poverty um, uh-huh. as well as folks that are working on racism specifically but I think the the frame allows for uh, especially focusing on Highlighting people's stories and testimony has been helpful in kind of highlighting connections that are there. Like, it's pretty mm-hmm. obvious to see the similarities between stories from, like, a single mom in Cuba and a single mom on Long Island. And the diversity of the communities, like, make that look different in some ways, but there's so many commonalities between the experiences in different areas. Um, but it's not easy in this society to to do multiracial organizing always um but so it's something that we have to work to be really intentional about so it's been a long year (laughs) Uh we're looking at the end of 2017 and i think uh, most people are not going to be sorry to see it go we're still in limbo on the tax bill and a few other things but what are some takeaways that you have from this past year, from the struggles that you've been involved in? What are some of the, I guess, let's, let's start with one thing that has been, let's say, let's start with one thing that's been better than you thought it would be. Well, people are definitely motivated and feel there's a sense of urgency among folks. I mean, thinking back to like the Women's March where so many people went out to a protest who hadn't been to a protest either ever or in decades. I think that has been, and, you know, I don't know that the levels of engagement have stayed constant, but, like, some folks have got got kind of energized and politicized and have stayed involved, yeah. and that's encouraging. Yeah. And I think other folks who have been doing this work for a long time, um, I don't know. Maybe we feel more, I think, a sense of urgency. Like, I don't know. I mean, 
things have been bad for a long time. So I also yeah. hesitate to like overstate like, oh, things like the world changed mm-hmm. the election. Yeah. But but definitely there's I don't know, maybe it's just a shared sense of like we really have to figure some things out now. And what have been the things that you've been seeing, you know, in your community that people have been struggling with the most? You know, I'm reminded of um, I was having a conversation with somebody recently who referred back to an SNL skit, like, very shortly after the election about how where, like, a bunch of white folks were, like, just shocked that this would happen and the people of color were like, yeah, I'm really upset, but I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. And I think among, um, like, the folks I know through my church community who are mostly white, like, there's still this sense of shock and disbelief that mm-hmm. is hanging on and that I think um, this that conversation I was mentioning was in the context of somebody really like looking anew at the reality of racism in our society and um, mm-hmm. struggling with like dealing with how sad that is and disturbing and upsetting and, and the sense of you know feeling guilty about it and not quite knowing what to do and I think so I think there's – I know a lot of people who who were shocked by the election who are still kind of trying to integrate what that meant and, like, adjust to a new reality. Um, and then on the other side of things, like, comes to mind immediately is, like, the undocumented immigrant community, which is just, like, under siege and people are getting deported and, and detained. And it's just this, like, onslaught of – bad stuff every day and having to deal with that and just and keep keep fighting um and also just trying like to organize for example against this tax bill like it seems like there's so much energy needed to try to keep something worse from happening that takes away from trying to imagine something better and like how can we do this like resistance keeping pushing back the bad stuff and also make space for trying to imagine what's a what what are we for like what and what can we how can we be working for stuff not just constantly fighting back yeah i guess that's one of the things that having the poor people's campaign in the works can help with right that you have something that is focused on having a big forward-looking campaign that goes that is planning to go on rather than a short-term response to whatever the today's horror is exactly yeah yeah and planning i i really appreciate the opportunity to be part of something that's looking and you know planning on that scale um which i think we just we have to make time for it I say, like, what are you looking forward to in 2018? We already talked about some of the, the action plans <laughs> and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's going to be an election year. It's going to be a whole new kind of insane news cycle. Um, mm-hmm. But what are, you, what are you thinking about going into the next year? What are you thinking about in terms of the work that you're doing? But just, you know, what... What changes are you thinking we can expect? Hmm. Well, I really hope that 
the Poor People's Campaign can. I'm hopeful about what will come out of the organizing with the Poor People's Campaign toward the 40 Days of Action, that I'm excited about the potential of bringing groups together that haven't necessarily worked together a lot, like, you know, bringing together groups working on anti-war organizing and things like that with, with which Labor Living Coalition, um, the organization I direct, hasn't been super active on in New York State, but the Poor People's Campaign is bringing together these different struggles under one umbrella, and I'm excited about what can come out of that cross-pollination. And I'm hopeful about the response that we've had to events around the Poor People's Campaign so far in New York. Mm -hmm. We just keep having more people show up to meetings and things than we had planned for or expected. It's showing that there's, it's, it's hitting a chord with at least some folks that I haven't seen in the last few years that I've been here. Um, so that's really exciting. And I hope that it's going to really be in kind of in the air of the, like the general public that people are going to, you know, we like in our two party system, neither party talks about the poor. Like it's all about the middle class. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, in 2018, maybe people running for office are going to feel like they have to talk about poverty because people are talking about it that they're going to have to talk about militarism. And that's what I'm hoping for, that it really starts to, to get into the conversation in New York State and around the country, that we these issues can't be swept under the rug. Well, how can people get in touch with the Poor People's Campaign, and how can people keep in touch with you and your organization? So the website for the Poor People's Campaign is poorpeoplescampaign.org. And on the landing page, there's a form to, for folks to sign up, and they can pledge to participate in actions and participate in civil disobedience or just be part of spreading the word. And then if you sign up, you'll get information both from the national level and then from the state that you're in. Labor Religion Coalition's website is laborreligion.org. And we're on Facebook, Labor Religion Coalition. And the New York State Poor People's Campaign has a Facebook page too. So all of the events that will be happening around the state as we're organizing towards the 40 days will be there as well. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening. Please open your hearts and your purses to a man who is misunderstood. He gets all the kicks and the curses, though he wishes you nothing but good. Well, he wistfully begs you to show him you think he's a friend, not a louse. So remember the debt that you owe him, the landlord who lends you his house. So pity the downtrodden landlord And his back that is burdened and bent Respect his gray hairs Don't ask for repairs And don't be behind with the rent Now you're able to work for a living And rejoice in your strength and your skill So try to be kind and forgiving 
To a man whom a day's work would kill You can work and still talk to your neighbor You can look the whole world in the face But the landlord who ventured to labor Would never survive the disgrace So pity the downtrodden landlord And his back that is burdened and bent Respect his gray hairs Don't ask for repairs And don't be behind with the rent Now, when a landlord resorts to eviction Don't think that he does it for spite He is acting from deepest conviction And what's right, after all, is what's right But I see that your hearts are all hardened And I fear I'm appealing in vain Yet I hope my last plea will be pardoned If I beg on my knees once again Pity the downtrodden landlord And his back that is burdened and bent Respect his gray hairs Don't ask for repairs And don't be behind with the rent Got an invitation to help Congress out in an investigation. Man came around and knocking at the door, gave me a paper that said, What for subpoena? Looking for un Americans. Look in the mirror. Now, if you want an invite, here's what to do. You gotta talk for peace, sing it too. Visit your neighbors, hear what they say. Before you know it, you're on your way, fair paid. Ride in style, first class. Well, you brush your hair and you dress real pretty. You got a date with the Un-American Committee. Take the stand, they swear you in. Old man Wood is wearing a grin. He thinks he's got you. Got a short memory. Can't recall what happened when they stuck a union label on his cantankerous investigation. Are you now or have you ever been? Were you ever sympathetic or interested in? When did you start? How long did it last? Tell us all about your interesting past. Answer yes or no. Did you go to a meeting? Did you sign a petition? Did you ever hold an executive position? Did you make a speech, carry a card? Did you ever hold a conference in your backyard? Fifth Amendment. Now they were asking questions, but we wouldn't buy it like those union brothers did it. It was time for us to try it. Added up the facts and the figures historical and asked them a question which sounds a bit rhetorical. Mr. Wood, are you now or have you ever been a bastard? You don't have to answer that question if you think it might tend to incriminate you. Now, Mr. Wood, get out of your rut. Do you swear to tell the truth and nothing but? Well, Wood said he would, but we knew he wouldn't. And even if he would, well, he damn well couldn't. But that's Congress for you. Week in, week out, week all over. Now, Wood, he couldn't rest on his laurels. He tried his best to corrupt our morals. He talked about Philbrick, Boudin's too. They're getting theirs. How about you? Now, I like 
chicken, I like duck, and I don't object to making a buck. But I ain't got wings and sure can't fly, and there's one bird that I won't buy, that stool pigeon. I'm strictly in the market for doves of peace. It is known that birds of a feather have a habit of flocking together. So listen, McCarran, Wood, and the rest. You can't use us to feather your nest. That's strictly for the birds. So here's the moral without a doubt. If you want to be free, you got to sing out. Sing it loud, sing it strong. People are singing a freedom song. That's my music. Solid with a freedom beat. So keep singing and keep fighting. This old world is in a sad condition. Well, this old world is in a sad condition. Well, this old world is in a sad condition. Well, I've been a traveling home. I am a lonely and a lonesome traveler. Well, I'm a lonely and a lonesome traveler. I am a lonely and a lonesome traveler. I've been a traveler. Traveled in the mountain, traveled down in the valley. Well, I traveled in the mountain, traveled down in the valley. Well, I traveled in the mountain, traveled. Down in the valley, well, I've been a traveling home. Travel with the rich and then I travel with the poor, oh, well, I travel with the rich and then I travel with the poor, oh, well, I travel with the rich and then I travel with the poor, oh, well, I've been traveling on. One of these days I'm gonna stop on my traveling. One of these days I'm gonna stop on my traveling. One of these days I'm gonna stop on my traveling. Stop on my traveling around. Well, I travel cold and then I travel hungry. Well, I travel cold and then I travel hungry. Well, I travel cold. Travel hungry, well, I've been a traveling around. I'm gonna keep right on a traveling on the road to freedom. Gonna keep right on a traveling on the road to freedom. Gonna keep right on a traveling to the road to freedom. Gonna keep right on a traveling on. Yeah, what do you want me to? How much more space you got? Oh, that particular song? I wrote the son of a bitch. I stole the first verse from that old spiritual. All right, welcome back to uh, filling in for the Common Thread Collective for a little bit here. I wanted to share some music with everyone. Um, so that last song was called This Old World, and that was uh, by Lee Hayes, who was a member of the Almanac Singers uh, with Pete Seeger and the Weavers with uh, Seeger and others. And this was the song was from a demo tape in 1946 that was on the collection Songs for Political Action, 
folk music, topical songs, and the American Left, 1926 to 1953. And before that, we heard another song also on that collection, excuse me, uh, from Betty Sanders called Talking on American Blues. And before that, Fred Hellerman with a song that's still very true, Pity the Downtrodden Landlord. Those poor, poor landlords out there kicking people out of places to live. Boo. Okay. So I wanted to play a a podcast here uh, for folks. It's a new podcast called How to Survive the End of the World by the Brown Sisters, and folks can find this on iTunes. So I thought we'd listen a little bit to that. And uh, that'll be coming up momentarily, so stay tuned. like jumping from ships during the middle he was pointing out to me that the sounds that our ancestors made as they were like jumping from ships during the middle passage and drowning in the ocean are still in the ocean right they're still in the bodies of water that we like exist in now that and so there's right it's like it's like it gives me chills even to like think about and and so there's this way in which like oh yeah ancestral memories are coming through me and also ancestral memories didn't go anywhere I'm Autumn Brown. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. In today's episode, we wanted you to know more about who we are. And we thought one way to let you see us is to open the window on our creative practices. In this episode, we end up diving deeply into the practice of writing fiction which leads us into a conversation about channeling our ancestors. We really felt it was important to have this episode early in our season because we really believe that we're in an imagination battle right now, that we're living in a world that someone else created, in power dynamics that someone else created, and that it's our responsibility to counter-imagine what we actually want and what we actually need to really create futures that are viable for more and more of us. And some of the work of creating those futures is writing fiction. So our Octavia Butler quote today don't start out writing good stuff. You start out writing crap and thinking it's good stuff, and then gradually you get better at it. That's why I say one of the most valuable traits is persistence. It's just so easy to give up.
So this quote feels super relevant to both of our lives when it comes to writing. Um, <clears throat> for me, it feels like there was a long period of my life where I was like, oh, I'll just be a facilitator and I'll just like support other people and maybe even edit other people um, into writing and even write nonfiction, but I'll keep putting aside the part of me that passionately wants to write fiction. And it feels like it's been this like continuous nudging, nudging, nudging in my system of like, wait, you really do want to do this and you're not going to be great at it at first. And so a couple years ago, I got the opportunity to go to the Clarion Writers Workshop, which is something that Octavia went to and part of how I'd heard about it. And I remember sitting in that writing workshop, I came in like, oh, I feel pretty good. Like I've got good ideas. I'm excited about what I'm going to write. I had done some writing coaching in the past with other people and I was like, I got this, you know? And then showing up there and just being surrounded by people who were incredible writers and just being like, I know nothing. <laughs> I don't know how to make a story. I don't know the genres that they're talking about and referencing. I don't know how you actually build out a character, how you actually write dialogue. Like, I know nothing. And, um, and really choosing like, okay, I'm going to write all day, every day, as much as I possibly can and just use this time to get better. But it was one of the first times that I was like, oh, this is something that like, I can't just like write and post, which is how I often do my blog. It's just like I wrote it, I posted it, it was true, it was how I felt at that moment, it's gone. And with this, it was like, oh, this is craft. And like, that's a different kind of craft, you know, like accessing your vulnerability as a craft, but really being like, oh, short story writing, fiction writing, novel writing, developing characters, all of that is craft. And this is a craft that I could spend my entire life learning and never maybe produce anything for the public and still be very satisfied with the learning. But it is like this ongoing practice, this ongoing craft development, and that I have to be passionately, persistently doing it if I want it to happen. What is your writing life been like? Well, and actually just answering by similar, similarly saying that like my like entry point to writing fiction was so surprising to me and and my journey with it over the last seven years has been similarly really feeling like um uh, uh, navigating the space between like the part of it that is about craft and the part of it that is about the way a story will unveil itself to you and that there is an uh, amazing amount of like mystery involved in the process of like of creating a piece of fiction because in my experience, um, the way that I came to writing fiction was that I basically got bowled over by a story that kind of is, was insisting its way out of me and that I had never, ever, ever wanted to write fiction. Like it, it wasn't like I, it wasn't like it was like an active animosity towards writing fiction at all. It was just like not literally something that had not ever occurred to me. And I grew up, as you did, like we both grew up reading lots of science fiction. Um, and in my adulthood, I came to really understand that that was like the preferred genre for me to read, right? That I was just like, oh, like I just love this genre. I love everything about it. Like I am unabashedly a science fiction lover. I could give like zero fucks about people who ha like want a genre bash. It's just like, I don't know what you're talking about this literature as far as I'm concerned. And like, you know, I, there's this whole weird thing around like, 
genre anyway i don't really feel like i even fully understand it because i sort of feel like yeah like literally any genre contains like both amazing literary work and terrible work that's not literary or like vampy stuff that's neither terrible nor literary and like i just don't understand (laughs) i don't understand it but anyway oh yeah go ahead well, just a quick thing on that that I think is really hilarious is like when we were doing Octavia's Brood, you know, one of the words we came up with was genre side that we were like, we want to <laughs> obliterate <laughs> this commitment to genres that no longer feels useful and feels colonial, right? Like it's like, oh, this whole idea that you have to categorize every kind of writing into a very specific box um, to market it to market it to people, to be like, oh, you like this, here's the other stuff you can buy that fits into that. And you like this, and we will determine what is quality or not quality writing, like based on the kind of genre that you're doing. And like real literature is only written by a certain kind of people. And so I just think it it was like such an important piece to us. And I think it's so important when you're like, oh, we're in the realm of imagination. And the idea that in the realm of imagination, we would say, oh, this whole imagination, this entire world is getting created. Because even if you're writing about 1860s love story, you're making up a world you don't know. Like you're mm-hmm. determining what it is and you're creating the conditions of it. Mm-hmm. And you might be laying a history on it, but history is also so... Um, invented. Invented and fluid and like determined by the victors and all these things. So it, it really is saying like, oh, the past gets written by certain people. Who gets to write the future mm-hmm. or who gets to write even the present or the near future? And it amazes me. Like I look at writers like oh, Don DeLillo or something where I'm like, that feels like visionary or speculative fiction. But he gets read as like just great literature, <laughs> you know, exactly. or whatever. So, yeah, I love yeah. that point. Yes. So for me, it was it, it, it was interesting, too, in terms of the craft piece, because I went to I absolutely went to a writing college. Right. Like I went to Sarah Lawrence College where everything um, every all of the academic work is sort of framed through the lens of writing. Um, but I never took any creative writing courses while I was there. And so I really missed the whole I, I missed the whole like uh, uh piece of learning that happens there that's around craft. Um, Although interestingly, I remember that I did take a course called The Art of the Critique, where it focused a lot on how to actually critique artwork. And so so I am someone who tends to have like very strong opinions about like theatrical productions and other people's writing and like how everything should be. Um, So that was an interesting sort of holdover. But but anyway, so as in terms of the, the entree into fiction writing, because I had been for years I had um, similarly had a blog that I had been um, writing for, you know, since like 2006 and um, had done a lot of political writing and um, had had some pieces published. Uh, But what happened for me was that I moved from New York City to rural Minnesota in 2010. And within a couple of months of arriving in my new home, um, this story just really came to me. And it really felt like... um, it felt like how I think often a lot of the writers that I admire and respect describe the the sort of experience of inspiration or the experience of like sort of being called by a story that I just, I had this character. I had this person who it felt like she was inhabiting me. And, um, and I know that, you know, part of what was happening for me too, was that I was processing as a, as a new parent at the time I had, you know, a two year old and a two month old. And I think as a new parent, I was really, um, 
processing a lot of confusion and fear and um, you know, processing the experience of having lost a community that w really supported me as a parent in the process of moving. And so I think that there was a lot like uh, spiritually and psychologically that was happening for me as a part of why that story came to me. But in terms of the story itself, you know, I almost feel like with Small and Bright, which is the novel that I'm currently working on, and that it is that same story that came to me in 2010, I don't feel like I can claim ownership of that story at all. And one of the ways in which I really understand that is that like, I've literally been writing this story since 2010. Do you know what I'm saying? And it hasn't become any less interesting to me. And I also haven't felt any more of a sense of like complete clarity around what all happens within the narrative. Um, one of the things that's been kind of cool for me about having worked on the story for so long, you know, it's been seven years now, is that the structure of the novel is complete. Um, but not all the narrative has been written. So there are still many parts of the story that are unveiling themselves to me. And a lot of, for me, a lot of my writing practice right now is about finding enough stillness in my life to allow it to emerge. Um, and, and, and I, I had my first experience of going on a writing residency in the fall of 2016. Um, and, and similarly, it was similar to what you described about Clarion. It was really interesting to be in a space where, um, you know, it was at a it was at an artist residency space that primarily serves visual artists, but there's always a small cohort of writers. And so it was me and like you know 15 other writers, many of whom have published multiple books, many of whom have been writing for decades, and. And just, you know, sort of peeking into different people's writing studios and witnessing, like, um, the various ways that people visualize their writing process was just astounding to me. Um, and, and I felt like I, I felt like I soaked up so much knowledge just from being among other writers about what is sort of acceptable uh, the range of things that are acceptable to include in a writing process. I remember arriving and, and actually my father-in-law who was a poet had warned me before I went to the writing residency. He was like, just be aware that you're going to have to sleep a lot. Like you are going to be very tired and you are going to sleep a lot and just let that happen. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I'm not going to sleep a lot. I'm going to like totally just write the whole time. And he was completely right. I absolutely spent a, a significant part of my whole first week there sleeping. In fact, I got on this schedule where I would wake up in the morning, go to breakfast, come back to my room, go back to sleep, wake up in time for lunch and then go eat lunch. And then I would go to my studio and then I would write from that then until dinner, eat dinner, and then go back to my studio and write until really late at night. And I just got into this groove where I was like, just really allowing myself to fully rest down my nervous system, which turned out to be a really the key to actually being able to allow parts of the story to come to come through me that had really just been awaiting an opportunity to come through. And that's that's been one of the really beautiful. Uh, experiences for me about this about this story that like that um, that I know that the complete version of the story is there, but it 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 <laughs> it's sort of been this um, 
in many ways, like the, the, the process of writing this novel has been the thing that's actually held me accountable to my own need to care for myself more than like lots of other things in my life, <laughs> because the story is like, well, I'm waiting for you as soon as you are actually ready to set, set yourself down. I love, I love that. I love that idea. It reminds me of this amazing TED talk I saw from Elizabeth Gilbert who did mm. Eat, Pray, Love. And I remember being like, oh, Eat, Pray, Love. You know, people had their, a lot of different thoughts Fuck about it. <laughs> exactly. Everybody was like, eh, you know. Um, but I remember, you know, reading it. I often will do this of trying to avoid what like the majority of people or whatever are saying about something until I get to experience it myself. And that was one of those books where I was like, okay, people have their feelings about this. Let me just read it. And I was like, I, I love it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, I want to do that. And, and I felt Speak your truth, Adrian. exactly. I was just like, <laughs> no, I feel like a lot of um, kinship with this idea of just being like, Oh, I want to find myself and I need to go away from the life I have to do that. And fundamentally that was the point of it. But in the Ted talk, um, and, and I also see the critiques of like, Oh, who gets to do that? Mm -hmm. I, I was all that, but in the TED talk she gave, she talks, she tells a story about this poet. The extraordinary American poet, Ruth Stone, who's now in her 90s, but she's been a poet her entire life. And she told me that when she was growing up in rural Virginia, she would be out working in the fields and she said she would like feel and hear a poem coming at her from over the landscape. And she said it was like a thunderous train of air and it would come barreling down at her over the landscape. And when she felt it coming, because it would like shake the earth under her feet, she knew that she had only one thing to do at that point, And that was to, in her words, run like hell. And she would like run like hell to the house and she'd be getting chased by this poem and the whole deal was that she had to get to a piece of paper and a pencil fast enough so that when it thundered through her she could collect it I think about that a lot when it's like when does writing come and how does writing come and like for every kind of writing I do I feel like it's basically that that it's like a poem is coming now a song is coming now a blog is coming now and a column is coming and I really have tried to put myself in the way of that work that feels like, oh, that's distinctly mine. But all of those are also faster turnaround. It's like, oh, I wrote that. I got the poem done. There's the whole thing. Um, and with the novel, it's been such a slower process. And so I love this, what Octavia says, is that you think you're doing good writing, you're writing crap. And you know, slowly you keep doing it. Because I feel like I also, I've been working on Grievers, um, gosh probably yeah like, like <laughs> seven eight years right? well seven or eight years because i started grievers before the river and then came then wrote the river and then sort of came back to it grievers was the story that i also took to vona which is voices of our nation mm -hmm. um, which when i went it was a one-week retreat all with people of color it was the first year they'd ever done the speculative fiction workshop Tanana Reeve Dew was teaching it and it started on Octavia's birthday and we were just like we are so amazing like this just felt like this is so special and so important you know for our listeners you for our listeners you might want to explain what the river is oh that's great so the river is the story that I included in Octavia's brood and you know I always thank God for Walida Imarisha who is the co-editor of that book because I had started out submitting a different story that I thought was so interesting and so cool and like kind of a spy story like but then when she read it she was like mm, there's a lot of patriarchy in this story actually which I hadn't seen when I was writing it mm -hmm. um, because for me there was this much longer story around it that like balanced everything but I was like oh but that's not showing up in the you know seven pages that are here and 
Uh, so I was like, well, I do have this other story, which I had kind of written and like set aside because it moved so slowly. And that was the river. And she read it. And she was like, this is the story. Work on this. And so I worked on the river and included it in Octavia's Brood and got really positive feedback for it. It got repu republished a few other places um, in Apex Magazine and Cicada Magazine. And it was just like, oh, this this is a great story. And the Grievers weaves in and out of that story. Like, mm -hmm. it's in a similarly, um, you know, it's more explicitly about grief, obviously. It's more explicitly about, like, grief as this plague that people can't overcome. Um, and it's specifically about Detroit as this epicenter of grief and that there's something to be learned there. Um, but it's also about, in the same way River was, about a city that is on sentient land that has something to say and wants to be a part of whatever the the transformation is and I feel that way about this planet that we live on so it's been like this beautiful way of me being like how do I be in this dance of hopelessness about our species in a lot of ways but hopefulness about the planet that we live on and like how do we get in right relationship with her in order to get in right relationship with ourselves um, but Vona was like such an important learning process and Clarion was such an important learning process but the thing that I learned in both of those places was oh, in order to write fiction, unlike anything else, I have to take myself away and get into my writer's rhythm. So what you were just talking about, that like, I need to sleep a lot, I need to be able to stay up late. Like, I think of that like, oh, there's that circadian rhythm and then there's this writing rhythm. And sometimes they align for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I find that I often will wake up really early and get into a pattern of waking up really early, but I won't write really early. Like, I'll wake up really early and I'll meditate or I'll reflect or I'll do other things and then again I will sleep mm -hmm. <laughs> and sleep and sleep and cry um, <laughs> right, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm like oh there's all this all these other things mm -hmm. that sort of get piled up on top of my creative center because in order to survive life you have to be so creative to just get through mm -hmm. you know like all the oppression that is being piled on top of you. It's like I'm being creative and this pile of places where I need to be creative is so high. So there's something about saying, I'm gonna find a way to make a week for myself, whether it's in my home or whether I go to Mexico or somewhere else. And I've started really setting aside resources to make sure that I can go find places mm -hmm. to be alone, mm -hmm. to get into that rhythm. Once I get into that rhythm, I've never had a problem with producing stuff in that rhythm, mm -hmm. you know? and. One other thing I want to add here is that Tanana Reeve Du, who is an incredible black horror writer, um, who I, I'm just like, go read all of her mm -hmm. stuff, her Living Blood series, The Good House. She just has written incredible stuff. She's been an incredible mentor and coach to me. And one of the things she often said was, you find the short story first. Like, always find the short story, find the short version, find the epicenter of what you need to write and make sure that you've got that and that it's good and that it can stand alone. Mm -hmm. Then you can flush that out and build it in a million different directions, but find that short story first. And it feels in, that that is in relationship to this Octavia quote, because it's like, you need to get good, but be persistent and be disciplined to find the epicenter of it, find the thing that's at the core. Then you know, be persistent enough to keep going out in all the different directions that it needs to serve. Yeah. But I, I think people often want to skip that step and be like, I'm writing a novel. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, yeah, and what's the essence of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, on the crying tip, um, my, my best friend, Alexis Powell, who's an incredible just visionary artist who's like, <laughs> 
both a director and filmmaker and an incredible musician, songwriter, singer, like just incredible, incredible artist, um, just finished a residency. And one of the things that she shared with me like several times over the course of the residency is just how much she was crying, that she was just crying the entire time. Um, and I've got to check with her to make sure she's okay with me sharing that in this podcast. But I, I doubt I doubt she'd have a problem with it since um, she did this amazing um, video series on Instagram documenting her experience at the writing residency that involved a lot of wigs and amazing just acting on her part. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's really real. And, and, and on that short story tip, one of the things that's been really interesting for me and my writing process is like collecting the short stories that are also waiting to come through me and noticing that there is this other piece around writing that, um, that has been true for me and my sense is that it's also been true for you that like sometimes the writing is like sometimes the writing process is awaiting an invitation um and so I noticed that you know the the first chapter of small and bright was published in Octavia's Brood and uh you know maybe I uh, five or six months after that happened I had an editor of a different science fiction anthology reach out to me and say I am putting together this anthology and I would really like to publish another, a new piece of work from you. Um, so if you have a story that's ready um, and you could submit it by this date, um, I would, I, I'd like to publish it. And what was interesting in that moment was that I did have, I had several stories that I had um, sketched but not written and one that I was really excited to write that it was like it had been again, like just had been like sort of inside me for a while. Um, but it took that invitation for me to finally carve out the space to write it and to give it the attention that it needed. Um, and that's this story called Hard and Ancient Work that came out in the Procyon Science Fiction Anthology in 2016. And it was a very powerful experience for me to notice that um, once, especially with short stories, I think the amazing thing with short stories is that once you have the sketch in place, the actual process of writing the story can happen very fast. You know, I think that I had the sketch in place for a few months and then it wasn't until I went on this vacation to Mexico and I wrote, I wrote the entire story in the course of like four days. Um, and, <clears throat> but, and again, a story that had been sort of like kind of holding, holding space, waiting inside me for probably three years or something by the time that I actually wrote it. Um, and I think that, and similarly, in, in terms of my relationship with the novel that I'm writing, Small and Bright, that um, having people who've read that first chapter and have reached out to me, both like friends, but also complete strangers who've like reached out to me via email and said, please finish this book. Please finish this book. I cannot handle the cliffhanger that this character is left on at the end of the short version, the short story version. Like, please, please, please. I need to know what happens to her. And having, it's very surreal experience to have people that you don't know feel so strongly about something that you've created that when you put it out into the world, you're like, oh, well, I guess like, we'll see if anyone pays any attention to this. Well, and something I think is important to no note there, and it's not across the board, but something I think is important to note is that so many women of color that I meet and queer people of color that I meet, 
they're the ones who struggle the most with like, I don't know if this is any good. And are often writing stuff is actually really incredible. <laughs> but the response is, you know, the response in yourself, there's so much socialization. It's like, oh, not you. Like, you couldn't possibly be good at this or you couldn't possibly have written something amazing. And it's like, oh, no, yes, I did, actually, <laughs> right? And it's you only hear it back when, you, when it lands with all these other people. And they're like, oh, no, this is amazing, actually. Um, so that's one thing. I think the second thing is like, it's so important that we create those invitations for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, oh, that was a big part of what Octavia's Brood ended up being, was like, here's an invitation, both to the people who submitted and wrote stuff, and to all these other people who came through the writing workshops and all these other spaces that we created, um, where it's like, oh, this is an invitation. And what it made me realize is I'm constantly like paying attention now to like, oh, what are the anthologies? What are the invitations that are out there? And how exciting it is that there's more and more and more. It feels like every time I turn around, there's another anthology being announced. It's like, oh, Juno Diaz is doing something on global dystopias. And Sheree Renee Thomas is c constantly doing stuff. Um, it, it's amazing to see the one that was for Stories for Chip, um, where people were like, let's do an anthology for Samuel Delaney while he's alive so that he can kind of see oh. all the ways that people love his work now and right in the here and now. Um, and just feeling like this is how it should be. Like there should be tons of people of color creating our own collections and creating our own section of genres, multi-genres that get to be in conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. and. It also makes me think of the people who I feel like are bravely kind of forging their way across all these spaces. Sophia Samatar leaps to mind. She just released a collection called Tender Stories. And she spoke at WISCON two years ago, and she gave this incredible talk about how, as a writer, she's like, I have lots and lots of different voices, which I feel like it was so exciting to hear someone talk about that and feel a lot of permission in that, mm -hmm. that I feel like I've always admired writers where it's like, oh, you open it, and you're just like, oh, this is Nayla Hawkinson, like, this is amazing. And I get so moved by that. But then I feel like when I go to write, it's much more like, I have no idea what's going to come out. There's, mm -hmm. you know, there's so, because I am so, um, we are so multi-diasporic. It's like we're just all over the place with where we grew up, the influences that we had. It's not traced back to one clear lineage for us. There's like many places that we're intersecting in. And I think that shows up then in the voices that come out where I'm like, I have no idea what ancestor person this is who's mm -hmm. casting forward into the future. Um, but here the voices, it's very clear. I know it, I've got to write it. So you mentioned earlier that you had a question about my writing process. Did I answer that already? Uh, no, you didn't. So the question was actually like, how did you start writing fiction? When did that happen for you? And, um, and was it confusing when you started? Oh, I love that question. Um, you know, I feel like I was almost always writing fiction. Like, I feel like from a very, very young age, I was writing and I was drawing. And I would often do the two together, like drawing these, like, female figures for the most part and then writing stories about their lives or writing little pieces. I remember I wrote something that was a piece of fiction that mom found and was like super disturbed by it was like a doctor experimenting on a patient or something um <laughs> and it was just like me processing through like weird stuff around bodies and like who has access to bodies i think it was after i had had some um yeah i'd had this horrible well i had had two really traumatic hospitalizations when i was young um, but one was I had like a kidney stone and I went in, it was like I was 13, I had a kidney stone. I went into uh, the OBGYN 
um, or no, I just went into the emergency room and I was with dad and this guy doctor was like, kept asking me if I was pregnant and I was like way far from, <laughs> you know, sex and pregnancy and all that. I just had no clue what he was talking about. And I was just, I don't think I'd even started my period yet. I was just like, I'm feel like I'm dying, <laughs> you know? Right. And he wrenched my legs open to give me a pap smear exam. Um, and so I remember, I think part of it was like, oh, I've got to process this somehow. And so I wrote something that was processing that for me. Um, and so I, I remember using fiction very early on as a way to be like, how am I understanding what's going on? Mm-hmm. But I don't remember feeling confident about my fiction until like my late 20s, that I started writing the blog in like 2003. And I felt very comfortable finding like a political voice and like honing that political voice. Um, I shifted from being an announcement based writer of like, here's an event or here's something that's happening into like, just here's my thoughts on what's happening. And my thoughts matter because of my social location and they matter to me and they matter to this group of people that I'm dealing with. And I kept writing fiction on the side, but I I started being like, oh, I'm not good enough because I kept reading people being like, they're so amazing. Like, all this feels so pedestrian when I go back and read it after reading something by Octavia or after reading something by Samuel Delaney or William Gibson or the writers that I love. Um, and I really feel like there was something in the, in the lead up to Octavia's brood. And there was something about getting into Vona that was like, oh, someone else is reading my work and feels like it's good. The other thing that happened around that, actually, I totally forgot about this, the Kresge Award that I received, I put in like, here's my blog writing, but I also sent them three short stories. And that was, there was the first time anyone had read those three stories. The river was in there and two others. Mm. And they gave me this award. They were like, oh yeah. And I remember being like, oh snap, (laughs) you know, like the pressure is on. And someone (laughs) gave me money and now I have to know how to be a writer. (laughs) Um, And feeling like the imposter syndrome stuff that comes with that immediately and feeling like the only thing that assuaged me was like, okay, I'm diligently writing my blog at all times. Mm -hmm. And I write every day. And so, yes, I deserve this. I have written for free for a long time. Um, And so that was like how I got through the award. Because I think people are always like, oh, the award is so easy to receive those. And it's like, actually, no. They become a different pressure or their own pressure. So it's uh, it's Christmas season. How are you doing? Right on. (laughs) You look good. The day when men shall rise and firm on science building From thefts thick mask of fraud and lies Strip all the specious gilding Oh, slaves of toil, no craven fear No dread of fell disasters Me dodging now, then I've
Secretary, but now I enter data on the VDT. I tell you it's not like a show on TV. It's help to earn a living on a VDT. You won't hear me say the typing was fun. At least I could see the work that I had done, and the boss couldn't test my productivity by punching up my number on his VDT. Where the screen's staring back at me It's hell to earn a living on a VDT My supervisor says it's safe for me She shows me a study done at MIT You can see what it's done to my eyes Heaven only knows what it's doing inside it's not like I thought it would be It's hell to earn a living on a VDT When you think of union, what comes to your mind? A guy driving a truck, working the line But if you ever spent hours behind a VDT You know no one needs a union more than me Eyes are aching, but now I can see It's hell to earn a living on a VDT Tell you it's not what I thought it would be It's hell to earn a living on a VDT That was our labor music set we had. Uh, last one there was uh, Tom Jurovich talking about the VDT, putting information in, uh, sort of an unsung group of workers that have developed over the last 20 years. You can't have big computer companies without, without a lot of skilled workers at all different kinds of things. And they were pretty, pretty much unorganized. So have you got any idea about how to organize the white-collar workers at the big 
computer companies in Santa Clara and San Jose. Get on down there and do it. <laughs> um, before that, we had Solidarity Forever and, and our notes about Ralph Chaplin, very well-known uh, songwriter for the labor movement. And um, then we had Slaves of Toil by the James Connolly Songs of Freedom Band. Connolly, of course, the Irish socialist and uh, another labor culture guy, just like Ralph Chaplin. He wrote a lot of songs. This one was Slaves of Toil, Getting Rid of the Masters. And uh, Solidary Forever by the great Ralph Chaplin. Okay, we're getting up on the uh, on the twelve o'clock hour, and I want to begin by uh, the eleven o'clock hour. Pardon me, it's ten fifty-five, and this is Mutiny Radio, and I'm the B, the Union B, to be exact. Um, coming at you between ten and twelve every Saturday morning. You're. Uh, online labor magazine, labor articles, labor music, songs and stories of social justice, news, commentary, interviews. If you can't listen live, listen on our uh, archives. That's mutinyradio.org and go to archives and find labor and love. <coughs> So I'm going to talk about uh, Alta California, which is a company based in Marin County. Okay, and Alta California uh, manufactures uh, um, tinctures made from uh, cannabis plants, marijuana plants. And uh, they have three different strengths of tincture. There's a, there's a different um, ratio between the CBD, which is the healing, which are the healing aspects of the plant, and the THC, which is the euphoric. So they make three different mixes. One of them is for healing, and that's mostly CBD. One of them is tranquility, which is a balance of the two. And then there's the euphoria tincture for that getaway feeling, that, you know, that nice high feeling that, that uh, often is so relaxing and so beneficial to relax, that is. So that's uh, CBD Science there at Stinson Beach, California, 94970. 877-737-4420. That's 877-737-4420. And they're called cbdscience.com, all lowercase. Get in touch with the people at Alta California and tell them the people from Mutiny Radio, specifically the B, sent you.
My other quote-unquote commercial is for a book company, a publishing house called PM Press. And PM Press publishes books of interest to people on the left from anarchists, socialists, communists, um, social democrats, everything on the left uh, that you probably won't find anywhere else. I'm holding in my hand a book called Revolutionary Women, a group of stencils. And it's published by PM Press. And PM Press is located at Post Office Box 23912, Oakland, California, 94623. They can be reached at 510-658-3906 or on the web www.pmpress.org. Revolutionary Women, and today I'm going to read to you about Lolita Lebron. Lolita Lebron was a political dissident and longtime prisoner working for a liberated Puerto Rico. She was born in Lares, Puerto Rico, to a family of poor cigar workers. Two years before her birth, the Jones-Shafroth Act made all Puerto Rican citizens of the United States. Spanish-speaking children were required to recite the United States Pledge of Allegiance in class and read textbooks in English. Lolita remembers young children being forced to wet their pants if they didn't ask permission to use the bathroom in English. This, she said, was a form of U.S. terrorism. She became a follower of Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos, leader of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party, and attended the party's meetings in New York. She corresponded with Campos while he was in prison. As a result, he chose Lolita, a woman he had never met, to lead an attack, an attack now, on the U.S. House of Representatives on March 1st, 1954. In the Victor's Gallery above the chamber in the House of Representatives, Lolita stood up saying, Viva! Puerto Rico Libre. Long live a free Puerto Rico and unfolded a Puerto Rican flag. The group then opened fire with automatic pistols, wounding five lawmakers and one representative. After her arrest, Lolita yelled, I did not come to kill anyone. I came to die for Puerto Rico. She appeared she was released in 1979 after serving 25 years. Following her release, she appeared before cheering crowds at rallies in Chicago and New York and was welcomed as a hero in Puerto Rico by the various independence groups. In 2001, she was involved in the movement to stop the U.S. Navy from testing its weapons at a place called Vieques. The whales that usually spawned there were being terrorized by the noises that the 
that were incumbent on the tests and the explosion. They were using this part of Puerto Rico as an artillery range, a shooting gallery, this island Vieques. Such protests resulted in the U.S. Navy leaving the island in 2003. On International Women's Day 2008, Lolita gave another rallying speech telling the hundreds of women gathered, we want everyone to know that women in Puerto Rico support, demand, and are fighting for the independence of Puerto Rico. Lolita Lebron died in uh, 2010. Another woman you wouldn't want to mess with. All right, let's play our PSAs now. light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs, which saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year? If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. For more information, go to getonboardnow.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by Mutiny Radio. The House Rabbit Society is an international volunteer-based nonprofit organization that rescues rabbits and educates the public on rabbit care and behavior through its national networks of fosterers and educators, award-winning website, advocacy programs, publications, classes, and more. The House Rabbit Society Rabbit Center, opened in 2000, is both the headquarters for House Rabbit Society and is a one-of-a-kind adoption and education center rescuing rabbits as space permits from 24 municipal and county shelters throughout the San Francisco Bay Area and offering a wide variety of educational programs to the larger community. For more information, go to www.rabbit.org or you could call 510-970-7575. This public service announcement is brought to you by... A grassroots animal welfare group called FixSanFrancisco.org has been working with other local groups 
city agencies and the San Francisco Animal Welfare Commission in moving the city of San Francisco towards a legislated no-kill policy. For more information, go to fixsanfrancisco.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by Mutiny. Do you like to play video games? Shoot hoops? Watch baseball games or just have fun in your spare time? Then become a mentor. Friends for Youth has served at-risk youth residing in San Mateo and northern Santa Clara counties since 1979. Their program creates and supports friendships between youth in need and adults who strive to make a difference. If you or someone you know would like to help a young person achieve their full potential, please call 650-482-2867 or visit friendsforyouth.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by Mutiny Radio. Oakland Art Murmur is... Okay, back again. This is Labor and Love, and we're uh, coming at you from Mutiny Radio. This is your weekly labor magazine. Articles, commentary, conversation, interviews, all about the labor movement, past, present, and future. And, by implication, all about social justice movements, past, present, and future of which the labor movement is a very big part and always has been. Even if not identified, say, as a union movement, combinations of working people who get together to help one another and make their lives better and always, always at the mercy of the power of the government and its allies and the plutocrats and their government. Uh, Our government has been very weak. It has not supported us in our endeavor to uh, work and have a fair workplace. Okay, enough said. Let's uh, jump back into some music. I'll start with uh, Miss Tracy Chapman. Ms. Tracy Chapman. You got a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. Starting from zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something. Me, myself, I got nothing to prove. Get a fast car. I 
I got a plan to get us out of here Been working at the convenience store Managed to save just a little bit of money Won't have to drive too far Just across the border and into the city You and I can both get jobs And finally see what it means to be living Got a problem Here with the bottle That's the way it is He says body's too old For working His body's too young To look like his My mama went off And left him She wanted more from life Than he could give I said somebody's got To take care of him So I quit school And that's what I did You got a fast car Is it fast enough so we can fly away? We gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way So I remember when we were driving Driving in your car Speed so fast it felt like I was drunk City lights stay out before us And your arm felt nice crap around my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged Someone You got a fast car We go cruise and entertain ourselves Still ain't got a job Now work in the market as a checkout girl I know things will get better You'll find work and I'll get promoted And we'll move out of the shelter Buy a bigger house and live in the suburbs
Lalo Guerrero celebrating the adoption of liberal, more liberal marijuana laws in Washington and Colorado. Se llama Juana, 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 Juana Pero ya todos los vatos le dicen marihuana Me siento volador Pégale bute esas teclas Ya estoy aviador Pégale bute esas teclas Que ya estoy volador That was, um, that was Lalo Guerrero. I'm going to stop in the middle of that set to uh, talk a little about Lalo Guerrero. Um, Lalo Guerrero was very famous uh, in the United States and in Latin America. He was born in Tucson, Arizona. And his father worked for the Southern Pacific Railroad. Um, he moved to L.A. in the 1940s. Uh, he's known as the father of the Chicano of Chicano music. He wrote and recorded many songs in all sorts of genre. He also wrote children's songs and songs about Cesar Chavez, other farm workers, and braceros. Guerrero wrote songs for El Trio, Los Panchos, Lola Beltran, and many other famous artists. His Pachuco music of the 1940s and 50s provided the soundtrack to Luis Valdez's late 1970s play and movie Zoot Suit, and that 
song that we played was a marijuana boogie and uh, that is featured in Zoot Suit. If you haven't seen Zoot Suit, uh, go see it today. Go see it today. Everyone, uh, everyone needs to see that the style of that film, the ideas in that film. Um, in the 1940s, he became a friend of the Ronstadt family of Arizona. Father of popular vocalist Linda Ronstadt was Gilbert, his friend. Um, he did parodies like Davy Crockett and <clears throat> Elvis Perez, Pancho Claus. Um, a major, major star in the music firmament and the originator of, of uh, Chicano music. And uh, we'll be playing a lot more of uh, Lalo Guerrero in the weeks to come. Okay, let's see now. I'm going to play one a little more contemporary now, okay? Let's play this one. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
was a uh, that was a labor set and uh, we had last one we had was fight the power by public enemy I think it's a, sort of a common uh, feeling among a lot of people especially people of my generation that hip-hop music is devoid of any real uh, socially redeeming qualities like hip-hop artists are not inclined to to write protest music write and perform it that's not true okay and we'll we'll be seeing a lot of uh, examples of that in the weeks to come so we had let's see we had uh, Lalo Guerrero with uh, the marijuana boogie and as I said that was in the movie uh, and the play of uh, <clears throat> Zoot Suit before that we had Tracy with Fast Car and I love that song because uh, it kind of makes its own forms uh, and she forces uh, her 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 whole story into our whole character story into a few sentences that she's worked at a uh, at a uh, convenience store grocery market we'll get good jobs we'll be able to make it we'll cross the border and we'll get over there and we'll be able to make it and get a house out in the suburbs that that hope that kind of uh, message that America got out to everybody, it's still happening, even though it's not happening. <laughs> the message is happening that you can come here and work hard and uh, be well off is no longer uh, happening. People come here and work very hard and the bar keeps rising up on them. Um, and then we had Tom Jurovich which I, yeah, I, I already spoke about Tom Jurabix. We're going back a little too far now. 
Alright, so this day in labor history. Um, and let's start with today, February 7th. On this day in 1894, gold miners near Cripple Creek, Colorado walked off the job, leading to one of the biggest victories for organized labor in the Gilded Age after the state of Colorado intervened on the side of the workers. The strike made the Western Federation of Miners the major labor organization among Western miners, as well as a reputation for violence that made it unacceptable to conservative labor groups in the AFL. By the 1890s, the area around Cripple Creek was the center of the Colorado gold fields. Cripple Creek itself was the second largest city in the state. The Panic of 1893 theoretically could have helped these workers. It was silver prices that collapsed and the government needed all the gold it could get. But this led silver miners to flood into the mines and convince mine owners to lower wages. The iron rule of uh, employers. The more workers there are contributing for a job, the less you can pay the worker to do that job. Announcing a 10-hour day previously eight with no pay raise by the mine owners led the miners to walk out. The strike was widespread and effective. By the end of February, virtually every gold mine in Colorado was shut down. A few gave in and restarted their mines after retreating back to the eight-hour day. However, the big mines were intransigent and brought in scab labor. On March 16th, a group of armed miners captured and beat six sheriff deputies heading up to a mine at Victor, where they were to assist in the protection of scabs. El Paso County Sheriff M.F. Bowers requested state militia intervention from the governor, populist Davis Waite. Waite was not the preferred governor for Colorado capitalists. When he realized that Bowers was lying to him about the extent of violence and really wanted a state strike-breaking force, he withdrew the militia. Bowers then arrested the strike leaders, but a jury found them not guilty of trumped-up charges. Meanwhile, the strikers began to attack the scabs, throwing bricks and getting into fistfights with them. The mine owners then attempted to negotiate with the miners, offering a return to the eight-hour day, but at reduced pay. The miners rejected this offer out of hand, and Waite still refused to use the state militia. The owners decided to raise a private army of their own, they paid for an army of a hundred men, mostly ex-policemen, to become sheriff deputies and protect the hundreds of scabs they intended to bring in the mine, the workers into the mine. Fearing a complete massacre, Governor Waite stepped in. It was an extremely rare move for a Gilded Age. But Waite issued an order declaring the workers' private army, the owner's private army, illegal, and ordered the capitalists to disband it. 
send, sending in the state militia as a peacekeeping force. He went to the miners and got their approval to be their bargaining agents with the mine owners. Mine owners were apoplectic. Even though they reached an argument, an agreement, mine owners wanted revenge. Wait forced the mine owners to agree to restore the eight-hour day at previous wages of about $3 a day. About $73 today, so basically the equivalent of about $9 an hour for extremely dangerous work. Arguably, organized labor's biggest win in the entire Gilded Age. One of the critical uh, actions in the development of the Western Federation of Miners, which later became one of the uh, backbone groups of the uh, IWW. Okay, let's talk a little bit now about pregnancy rights because there has been a break in some news about pregnancy rights for working women who become pregnant. While New Jersey and New York City were the latest to pass workplace protections for pregnant workers, a new state has taken up the cause, West Virginia. The state has long been mostly purple but hasn't voted for a Democratic president since 1996. Yet now it's embracing a new requirement for its employers championed by progressives. Its Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which requires employers to make reasonable accommodations for pregnant workers unless there is undue hardship, unanimously passed the House on Wednesday. While there are some existing federal protections for pregnant workers, they can still suffer financial hardship or even health problems when employers refuse to accommodate them. One West Virginia worker who wished to remain anonymous because she's still employed found out the hard way that her employer in the chemical industry put her on unpaid leave when she showed a doctor's note that she couldn't work with a particular chemical. Her story had a positive outcome, however. After she hired a lawyer, the company came to the table and came to an agreement. But as Margaret Chapman Pomponio, executive director of WV Free, one of the organizations helping to propel the bill forward told Think Progress, this law will address those problems without having the resources to get a lawyer. Democrats need to publish a federal bill on pregnant workers' rights. This is lawyers' guns and money. And uh, there's an article here about the AFL-CIO coming out for Keystone. This is the big issue for labor to solve now. How will labor solve this issue?
issues. You need to destroy the earth to have job. That's what capitalists do, the, the capitalism in the form that we're at now. <clears throat> mega corporate capitalism. Uh, mega capitalism. <clears throat> so what do you do? You need the job. You need to provide for your family. You need to get jobs for your, your workers if you're a, you're a union official. If those jobs in, entail the continuing destruction of the natural environment, what do you do? What do you do? Let's say, what, what, what would you do in that place with your... Uh, a construction worker or a uh, a worker de who depends on the depletion of the earth's resources or not what would you do that's the situation that capitalist capitalism puts us into okay the uh, hour hand is turned the corner now and it's climbing up towards 12 on the way out of here, I want to play uh, just some good feeling music, stuff that I found. Uh, little Bonnie Raitt, Amy Lou Harris. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt with, uh, along with Tracy Chapman. Buddy Guy uh, tribute.
not quite time for Karen Miraji. I wanted to play one more song, again remembering the great Pete Seeger who had such an influence uh, over the lives of a lot of people in such a positive way. Not only teaching people about the, uh, the beautiful unifying effects of music. Uh, Pete Seeger didn't normally sing solo solo concerts. Uh, the, the, uh, he wanted the audience to sing too. He wanted people all to sing together. But his unyielding determination to make life better for the working people and the people of color and for women. I mean, he was involved in just about every kind of movement, including the environmental movement big, that uh, came along. The labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement, uh, anti-nuke movement, just on and on and on. And I have to confess that uh, the temptation for someone like me who, who has a show and plays music is to play too much Pete Seeger. So I kind of stayed away from him uh, because his influence is so strong. Anyway, here's Pete singing and this is where he is right now. Uh, the big rock candy man. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fires were burning, down the track came a hobo hiking. He said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm heading for a land that's far away beside that crystal fountain. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, it's a land that's fair and bright. The handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. The boxcars all are empty, the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees. By the soda water fountain, by the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings. In the big rock candy mountains, in the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. Little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks. Oh, the shacks all have to tip their hats. The railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and ginger ale too. You can paddle all around it in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains The cops have wooden legs The bulldogs all have rubber teeth And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs The boxcars all are empty And the sun shines every day I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees. By the soda water fountain, by the lemonade springs, where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. 
In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. You can slip right out again as soon as they put you in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, nor picks. I'm bound to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the jerk that invented work in the big rock candy mountain. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountain. And that was Pete um, singing the Big Rock Candy Mountain, the uh, kind of imaginary heaven that the uh, hobos had and have, who knows. Uh, also a cowboy song, big hit among the cowboys. This is uh, the B, and uh, this has been Labor and Love. We're crawling up till the 12 o'clock hour. If you hang in there and wait, you get Thinking Cap coming right up after me. Uh, I want to thank all my listeners, and I want to give a call out to my soulmate, Sylvia Ramirez, and my daughter, Vita, who makes me proud to be a dad. Kiki, Sumi, Charlie, Lexi, Vita, and uh, Nepo, and... Uh, Solina, our new arrival, and Malene, who gives gives us good work. I want to say hello to Irene. And to all you people out there, remember if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, that means another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. And I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you next week. You'll hear me next week at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. This is the Labor and Love Radio Show on Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, a collective of people who are offering cutting-edge culture and uh, music worth, worth coming down here and checking out. Um, and that's just what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to check out with our checkout song by Carrie Miraji. This is her beautiful version of the Internacional. Goodbye and good work, everybody.
what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Mutiny Radio presents, Does This Joke Make Me Look Fat? A one-woman comedy show by Pam Benjamin. January 31st at Mutiny Radio and February 1st at the Purple Onion at Kells. This performance poet turned comedian is excited to present a full-length comedy show at two venues. She jokes about feminism, cats, cougar sex with 23-year-old skateboarders, her deeply religious past, and literary smart people stuff. She'll sing and dance for the man and even do part of this comedic show in her underwear. You won't want to miss it. Comics Aaron Barrett and Christopher Conester will be opening this amazing one-woman show that will also be taped for a DVD.
Oh. Well, I went to school. <laughs> a complete child all I'm doing is sitting here playing Zelda like a wimp <laughs> if I could I would but I don't cause I don't give a fuck but I still feel really cool cause I fixed the goddamn station <laughs> plugging it in man it's pretty cool but um so on my goddamn victory tour we're gonna play the other I, I, I brought two records down here and i hope they never get stolen well i actually brought three i brought that one that i used to play all the time but it was the intro song for the longest year the um african dude nate william o n e a y you know like fuck off and then um I brought my whole CD, which is, you just heard, which is the shit. Because, like, everybody always complains, hey, man, fucking Kurt Cobain wrote that whole record. Well, if he did, then this is the best fucking Nirvana record. <laughs> I hate Nirvana. I don't hate anything, really. But I really don't like that shit. Oh, this is funny. I meant to bring this up earlier. <laughs> I was thinking about things that I don't hate, right? Which is basically a lot of stuff. And I was like, well, what the fuck do you hate? And I was like, oh, my God. There's one style of person I would actually enjoy murdering. And that's those goddamn nitpickers. Those, oh, they're the worst. A fucking nitpicker can get fucked. They are the worst. The worst. But anyway... Ugh.
I could, boy, oh boy, so crazy to me. Like, like I feel bad. Like even like thinking about hurting people and shit. Sometimes just thinking about it makes me feel bad. But boy, oh boy, like I get excited thinking about just hitting a motherfucking nitpicker in the head with a baseball bat. Boom! That would be the shit. Ah, oh, fuck off. Yeah, I understand violence. I get that. <laughs> but anyway. I think, as I was saying before, we're just going to go in on the uh, the third CD that I brought that I always love, that I always play any fucking time you hear live show. You know it's me because you'll end up end up by some point hearing one of the songs off this record. One of the great records of American rock and roll history. Cheap Tricks, self-titled first record from 1977 or 8. Either way. Hello, kiddies.
just took a shot of Dayquil, and that shit tastes horrible. It's 6 o'clock. It's Friday night. It's time for happy hour. Uh, usually the happiest open mic that exists, but not today, motherfuckers. Uh, this was supposed to be guest hosted by Zane Barrett. He just told me 20 minutes ago he wasn't going to show up, so here I am. Yay. I Yeah. I'm going to use my own microphone tonight, and I'm not going to touch anyone else's microphone. I'm not going to shake your hands. It's not because I'm rude. It's because you don't want this. It sucks. And if you don't have it yet, man, you're so fucking lucky because everyone I know in San 